Listener Production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. You're going to love this next episode of The Wellness Collective. We are discussing chronic pain solutions with Lauren Campbell. We ask her what pain actually is and where it actually comes from. Why is pain so darn complicated? Why listening as a practitioner is so important for patients? We ask her about men and women and if there's a difference, we talk about treating issues like endometriosis, we talk about the pelvic floor and also why being strong and fit is so important. We know you're going to love this next episode of The Wellness Collective. Oh, hi there. Oh, hi. I need to meditate before we start. Oh, why? I'm feeling a bit frustrated. Oh, that's no good. You know, it happens. It doesn't help. I probably just came straight from the gym and I'm already like... Okay. Up here, you okay. know, how yeah. you got to like bring things down. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you've owned up to that before we get started today. So anyway, if I do talk at 100 miles an hour, you know why. <laughs> I'll just say, okay, stop and breathe. It's time for you to have your little moment of meditation. Now today, I am sharing with you someone who's very special to me. Really? Because you know when you find your person, right? And yes. you And you just want to tell everyone about that person because they've, you know, helped you with whatever it was, whether it's your hairdresser or yes. your but dentist. Then, found that with my dentist, but we're not talking to my dentist today. Problem with that is mm. when you love on someone that hard and you share them with everyone, yeah. then you can't get to see them anymore because they get so busy that you're like, well, hello. This is actually sort of what's happened. But anyway, <laughs> I am happy to share her. I would like to welcome to the Wellness Collective physiotherapist, Lauren Campbell. Hello. Thanks for having me, ladies. Now, Lauren, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I suppose I sort of wanted to open what I do is that on my business card, I am a titled physiotherapist in the musculoskeletal world. So, Mm -hmm. but what I really think I do is I think I'm a listener of stories, a problem solver and a sharer of knowledge, which sounds very vague, but at the same time, I probably sit in the middle of a Venn diagram between musculoskeletal pain, Mm. pain itself and sports physio. So I sort of see a whole range of people in sort of all those domains, Mm. but ultimately my business card says I'm a physiotherapist. I would say psychologist as well. (laughs) I actually had the um, the one appointment I had during COVID lockdown (laughs) was a half hour with Lauren each week, just one-on-one where we did physiotherapy to manage, you know, chronic pain because you're allowed to do continuous things like that. And it was the highlight of my week because, as you say, you're a good listener. Now, we are here to talk a little bit about physiotherapy and pain today because I'm really fascinated. We ha- we had an episode a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Angela Cortell from the States talking about joint pain in particular and the way to treat that. But I want to talk about more an she overall She was more sense. about PRP and injecting and That's it was so very different. It was very fascinating. So I don't feel like we're no. doubling over at all here. Not at all. PRP, I listened to your episode and is available here in Australia. Oh. It's about finding the right sports physician who's open to that sort of, um, it's newer technology yeah. and it's newer medicine, but there is some good, uh, I suppose, emerging data around it. Awesome. So yes, it is available here in Melbourne. Oh, are you um, doing it? No, no, no. My uh, <laughs> physio degree doesn't allow me any injectables, but uh, yeah, no, there's some people around Melbourne definitely are. Oh, so you have to do a bit more study so you can do the... It's always more stabby, stabby. (laughs) Always more study to be done. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about chronic pain because that's your bag, really. Now, how many people are walking around in chronic pain and do they, some of them not even realise, do you reckon? 
Chronic pain is such a complicated diagnosis in itself. And I suppose just to stay a little bit academic for a split second, Mm. um, only in 2019, the International Association for the Study of Pain actually gave a new definition. And I feel like this sort of helps people understand a little bit more about pain and then possibly what is chronic pain. And what they're saying, it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with comma or resembling that associated with comma, actual or potential tissue damage. So it's a pretty complicated diagnosis, but what we're sort of looking at is chronic pain is pain that lasts beyond expected healing times. So what the statistics are telling us is it's one in five Australians uh, over 45. Unfortunately, it's 80% of residential aged care um, residents and one in three over 65. So we are talking about huge, huge numbers. And the other one that I thought is really... um, Important to also highlight it, up to 35% of kids can experience chronic Mm. pain, so kids and adolescents. So it's not just age, I suppose, uh, pocketed. There's so many different parts of which pain is complicated. It can get the whole, unfortunately, lifespan. Yeah, I was going to ask about kids because they (laughs) they probably get left out. Either they can't communicate that they're in pain or perhaps, especially if it's been something that's been ongoing for them, I look at Geordie, I reckon he's in pain all the time. He just doesn't say anything. And when it gets to a certain point, he's just used to it. That's his normal. I do wonder anyway. I don't actually know because how do we actually know when it comes to anyone? But is there some type of scale or test? Like how do we know where someone's pain is? Because wouldn't we all have a different threshold as well? 100%. 100%. Pain, this is where pain's so complicated and that's where I sort of, I feel like pain literate, whether psychologists, physios, pain doctors, anyone, is a, it's a listener of stories. You've got to put together probably as much a, I suppose, a subjective history, understanding where the pain started, where it's all coming from and all the variables associated with that. But one of the things we've sort of um, veered a little bit away from is the old classic, out of 10, how much would <laughs> yes. you say this hurts? <laughs> Which, unfortunately, (laughs) is not very useful for 99% of uh, situations. This is only useful when it's you and you're comparing it to yesterday or last month or, you know, another time. Like, I use that with period pain all the time with patients. It's like, all right, compared to the last period, if the last period was a 10 out of 10 in pain, where was this one? I guess that's relevant still, right? 100%. And I suppose it's people understanding their variables within that, but also then probably I, I sort of use the one out of 10 myself as well with clients, but sort of understand well, why do you think that is more or less today? And then yeah. with kids, they're actually starting to use, the Royal Children's uses this and there's some really good studies around, they actually give them emojis now to pick rather than like what is four out of 10 for an 11 year old. It's too complicated. Like, are you crying in the pain or are you smiling? This is also, again, coming back to how we started Mm. and finding your person or the practitioner or health provider that you gel with is that also there's consistency there. So when you find somebody that you can see consistently, then that's another layer again, because you know them as a patient and you know them as a practitioner. So I think it's important to find those people. And I mean, this has been my theme this week for anyone watching, but if your health provider isn't listening to you or you don't gel with them, find another one. There's nothing wrong with no, doing that. there that isn't, is it? That's okay. Well, I saw two physios before I found Lauren and right. it was a recommendation. And I just remember when I described what was going on with me and you went, bing, bang, yes. bong, this is what I bing, think bang, it is. Oh, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was like a light bulb went on for me that I went, oh, this person understands what I'm saying and can 
see a way through it rather than just going, oh, we'll treat this and then but come back next week and how, we're not sure. Yeah, that's, yeah. Good, that's a good practitioner, one that actually listens. See, don't tell anyone where to find actually it. actually talks at you, <laughs> one that listens. Yeah. And interestingly, there's some statistics around, you know, physios and probably a lot of pain literate health professionals out there probably spend that little bit more time. But it's really interesting that GPs are unfortunately get a bit of a bad rep for not listening and there's statistics saying that they will interrupt you within seven to eight seconds wow. when you're telling a story. So physios are 60, so we're not great, but we're better. <laughs> um, but I think, again, it's the listening I think is key and I think one of the things that a lot of people talk to us about um, as physios and me as a clinician is that I think sometimes they think they've failed if their pain is not settling and mm. they think it's an intellectual issue that they haven't been able strong enough or anything like that. And it's a, it's a totally a physiological thing, which I can bore you about, but it is, it's a physiological, not a personality loss or anything like that. It's about trying to find the variables you can change to help in your treatment journey because it is a bit of a journey and, you know, the stats are telling us that people in chronic pain can spend up to six years uh, in that pain without a good treatment plan and I wonder whether sometimes that's a little bit of they didn't find their people, Mm -hmm. they didn't find their tribe but also people are going, oh, I've had this pain for a long time. I don't know if anyone can help me. Mm. And I think that in itself is is a message to share that you, you do need to get out there and ask some questions if you want to address this pain because yeah. you need a team. Do you think women and men feel pain differently? Well, I might have some statistics on that too. Um, so, All about the numbers. Yeah, she, she's got her numbers. So um, there's a really big study uh, that was done only three or four years ago. So this is fairly recent stuff in pain land because pain wasn't studied very well probably until the last 15 years. Wow. But the main results between men and women, because I know there's a lot of you know women that do listen to your podcast, so I think this is a really interesting take-home message. But the main results that the pain severity that women report is often higher and their pain acceptance and their social support is lower. While men report higher kinesophobia, and kinesophobia is when you've got a fear of movement, their oh. move disturbances are bigger and they have lower activity level when they're in pain. So you're saying they just become stiffy-whiffy and they don't want to move because they're oh, scared it's going to hurt. how old yep. men so can't like actually bend down and tie up their <laughs> shoelaces where I feel like women can probably do that for a bit longer. Is it because they're just too scared that they're going to like bust a disc or something and <laughs> as yeah. they get older it's actually more in their head. And I think it is telling us like they're, they're still trying to work out is this a physiological, is this how our coping mechanism, is there a, a psychological point in that? Because most women, there's a higher percentage of women that present to healthcare. Right. So are men not coming until it's really atrocious or are women coming earlier and getting treatment quicker? But unfortunately, we're still finding out that there's more women with chronic pain than there is men. Well, there's lots more reasons why women can have pain too. I think Correct. if you look at the fact that every single day a woman's different in her cycle, that, that's one factor, help, one of many. It? But also my understanding, and maybe this is part of the reason why you said there's not a lot of good statistics up until around 15 years ago, is that what you said? Yep. Is because I am led to believe that most research was done on men up until recently yes. because they were more consistent, whereas because we are, 
so fluctuating and vari- variable. We are not good test subjects. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that apples and oranges type thing and, you know, scientific stuff. They want to compare apples and apples if they can. And so that's where pain's really tough. But literally, they didn't diagnose pain properly. And, you know, and understanding what a good idea of what is chronic pain, that's taken them so long to mm. work out. And it's taken people, you know, a real amount of passion in, in this area to give us a better understanding of types of pain. Because, you know, chronic pain is sort of a category of pain, like acute pain and cancer pain. And they've also added to technically five categories. There's also like recurrent pain, which they call like sort of migraine type pain mm. uh, and subacute pain. Like I've had an operation, yeah. you know, it's starting to improve. So there's sort of five categories, but then there's the types of pain. So I sort of word it as nociceptive pain is ouchy pain. Like I tore my hamstring right now. Right. Ouch, that hurts. There's neuropathic pain, which is a nervy type of pain. And then there's nociplastic pain, which sounds very <laughs> academic again. That one. And that's when we have a higher pain sensitivity. Oh, and I think okay. this yep. is where the really complicated stuff comes in about, um, which I think is really misunderstood and takes a lot of careful language around that when the pain messages leave our body and go up into our brain, it's like a computer. It turns up the pain messages and sends out an output that is bigger. Now, that's not an intellectual decision. This is all at a physiological level. But that pain sensitivity is what is chronic pain in people. And it's then what chronic pain treatment is, is addressing that pain sensitivity and that nociplastic change, which is everyone's often heard the word neuroplasticity now. Mm. So our, our brain is plastic, it changes. So you can, you know, our brain can change to have that more sensitive area and it can actually desensitize as well. And that's where that pain literacy is really important for people to understand that. And it's, you know, the colloquialism that makes me shudder is, oh, it's in your head. Mm. Uh, no, well, yes, your brain's <laughs> in your head, correct. Who cares? If it's in your head, you're still feeling it. It doesn't matter where, like, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's it still doesn't, a real it doesn't experience. Matter. It's, you're still really feeling that. I think that's just such a, a default, isn't it? I think, though, culturally, right. it's, it's in, in well, that's head. what I was going to say. It's interesting, <laughs> isn't it, that culturally, I mean, we think we're so clever, yet we've ne- it's only 15 years ago that we decided to study this. Like seriously, uh-huh. yeah. we've been around for millennia. <laughs> I know. Fifteen. We didn't have ways either. I don't think we had. No, but it's, outside the box. But culturally, I was going to say, isn't it interesting that we do have that thing of, oh, suck it up, you'll be right, mm-hmm. carry on, it can't be that bad. And even it was interesting with COVID, the way, especially in Australia, we had to flip on our head this idea that, okay, you're not feeling great but you'll be fine. Just get to work and do what you have to do because that's more important than how you actually feel. And all of a sudden, because that was going to then affect everybody else you came in contact with, no, that wasn't okay anymore. Mm. So maybe that's a good opening for us to look at the way we think about pain as well and to go, actually, you know what? I feel really rubbish. Mm. Interesting. Treating throughout COVID, one of the things that I sort of was explaining to people is that you know, understanding pain as an experience is that I sort of in a cartoony way look at this is that an ankle sprain might have walked in during COVID and that one hour that they, people could get out in Melbourne during a day is that was a one out of 10 severity of pathology, but it was an 11 out of 10 reaction mm. because their pain because of what that symbolises, not getting out for their walk and not doing those things during COVID, I was treating huge pain but not big pathology. Mm. Does that kind of make sense? So you can have a really big reaction to not a huge pathology. And that was one of the things we saw most in COVID. There was those changes. And I think people have understood that a little bit more through conversations through COVID of, well, yes, how you're feeling about the world can actually impact your pain hugely. And people really saw beautiful examples of that, unfortunately, Mm. through COVID. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. But I love that you actually 
had the awareness to put the pieces together to go, <laughs> I think this is what's going on. This ankle doesn't seem that bad, but this person's really not coping with it. So, so what so else is reasons, going on? I weren't there really mm. throughout COVID mm. or lockdown. It's more the fact that we were seeing lockdown. this locally in Melbourne. There's so many facets to it. It's not being able to move like you would normally move. It's not having the social mm. circumstances where it's even being social and doing things that you love. Or going to the gym and stuff as well, well which would be your maintenance right. potentially. But I think I'm trying to talk about it more on like that emotional and mental level. Mm. Even the endorphins that you would release from being in a social circumstance can help with pain, I would imagine. So there was none of that happening. No social connection, no, you know, less interaction with people that you love. And then there was the downside of a lot of people would say that their nutrition went by the wayside. Like there was just so many impacting facets that could add up to it being a heck of a lot worse. Did you see anyone get better in COVID or lockdown, I should say? Definitely. Interestingly, the one, um, if we say a tiny silver lining of COVID is uh, no one had a lot of time commitments. Right. <laughs> so yeah. we um, were in the gaps around, you know, when there was orthopedic surgeries happening and, and just people are out and about more. If injuries happened or surgeries happened, they, they had beautiful rehabs. Uh, <laughs> and then it was actually, I often joke um, to clients that the easy, easier sometimes people to treat are people that, like an elite athlete has obviously a huge amount of variables in their life, but there's some more controllable variables, a community dwelling person, you know, there's life, there's family, there's all these other things happening. I've got more variables sometimes to control at a different level, but beautifully that was a lot easier in COVID because no one went anywhere. So (laughs) to be honest, it was a little physio dream there for a little bit that (laughs) elements of that happened really well and the compliance was amazing. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, the compliance. Yeah. <laughs> no one had any mm-hmm. excuses to not do they it. They wanted to come because there was nowhere else to go. Well, that, I, I can vouch for that, <laughs> exactly. I was going to say to you, I love actually listening to people's stories, like you say. The other day my cousin said to me that she was um, having a bit of trouble with endometriosis and someone had suggested to go and see a physio to help her with her ovaries. And I thought, right, there's a question for Lauren. As a physio, how do you treat ovaries? And internal organs. Like I didn't even know you could do that. I suppose the first thing is, is that people understanding what pain is and that pain can have all these inputs. One of the things that I think pain literate health professionals are good at is helping people understand the variables. So understanding their cycle is going to change uh, and being aware of that firstly. So education is hugely important around that, but also understanding what active things you can do to help your pain has so many elements to it. So as physiotherapists, sometimes I feel like we're the person sitting there listening to the story, people like to be heard, and then problem solving around that. What I would say as well with endometriosis pain, pelvic pain, you know, a a lot of sort of cycle-based pain is that unfortunately it's listed as one of the most common areas that progresses to chronic pain, unfortunately. Mm. So things like back pain as well as migraine and headache are some of the most common. And the thing is there are beautifully pain literate women's health physios out there, of which I'm not one myself, but women's health physios, this is what they treat. They understand it at a I suppose, a biomechanical level, but that would be underplaying the fact that they have all this pain literacy as well. So understanding how they can get in control of that pain because we all feel better when we're in control of it and understanding it. So, you know, touching base with a women's health physio is absolutely key in understanding what factors can they do. I think this is changing in the physio world a little bit that I don't 
don't you know, massage and mobilize every single client <laughs> I have. No. Um, I spend a lot of time talking and educating and sometimes I'm doing that while I might have my hands on a patient treating or while I'm doing exercise. But there's there's more to the educative level than I just push on it and obviously not push on the ovaries, but trying to help people have that really good understanding of how to manage that pain and not let it get out of control because chronic pain is complicated to treat, but it is something, again, it's seeking help, it's seeking treatment, and it's seeking awareness and knowledge. And so it is probably, again, I, I wouldn't advocate practitioner shopping, but you've got to click. They've got to get your story. Yeah. They've got to get you as a person. And that might not be the person who's got 45 years experience, or it might be. A lot of uh, new grad health professionals are really pain literate now versus people who graduated 30 years ago yeah. weren't. Yeah. So it is, you know, don't make it an ageist thing. Make it a, you got to click, you got to like them, and you've got to feel like they're on your team. So my, my highest recommendation is seek that care, seek your person, mm. especially if you've got pelvic pain. I think it's interesting too, though, that the idea of going to see someone when you're not at your worst mm. oh, in a yes, physical that's sense. That's so important. But that's a, often when we drop off too. What do you like mean? If you've had consistent treatment, oh, I feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go, you I, can, I don't need to go back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. <laughs> and then you start that, again. <laughs> I had a patient the other day and mm. she's like, same thing. She's like, I stopped doing everything that you told me to do. And I said, and you're kind of here again, wondering why <laughs> we're here again? Yeah. She gets frustrated. She's always here again. I'm like, well, Just there's a level of commitment. that I always think, though, however, you know, you're helping educate your patients. You're helping them to obviously add some variables and do some different things. I think the trick is giving someone the least amount possible, knowing it's going to have the most amount of change. So mm. what's the very least that you can give a patient in terms of like exercise or information or things that they've got to do? that's actually achievable, they're more likely to keep on doing it yep. and therefore feel better and not maybe need as many appointments. But I think the commitment is very important yes. when you want to feel better. I think also too that it's okay to go to see somebody thinking that down the track you might need help. Do you know what I mean? Like if you've just had a baby or if you hurt your knee skiing 10 years ago and it's never been quite right, but it's not that bad. But do you know what I mean? Like I think that idea that you go and you go, how do we work with this? That's okay. You don't have to wait till you're falling apart. That's Speaking of having babies. Sorry. Poor Lauren. She I know, that's okay. She's jumping all in. over the place. Yeah. Um, we're jump, we're like making you jump all over the place. But let's talk about pelvic floor because you've just brought up babies. Mm. I've just come from the gym. Pelvic floor. <laughs> so I've noticed something and it's just something that I've started to, I'm back at the gym, like proper back at the gym you know, I, f I faffed around over last year because, well, that was all we could do, really. Just a little bit of, run, you know, running if you were disciplined. I've started to notice now that it is a little bit more intense. I feel like there are certain days that my pelvic floor is much better than others and I feel like it's probably in line with my cycle. And what I'm starting to notice is that there are definitely <laughs> two or three days of the cycle that I will be like, oh, wow, I think I wet myself. <laughs> like I actually think I'm really embarrassed, but, I th uh -oh. but I'm, so, I'm just full transparency because I'm so sure that I'm not the only person. Yes. But I think it must be just after I've ovulated and I'm now starting to watch it because I reckon it's happened three months in a row and I've been on the treadmill and then I've walked out of the gym and I'm like, <laughs> that's not sweat. Oh. <laughs> I don't think that's sweat. It's really embarrassing. So I'm wondering... Do you think that this is, like, it, it makes sense in my mind that obviously everything comes down to around the time of ovulation, so maybe that's what's going on. My answer straight away goes to pelvic floor sometimes I think gets not remembered it, it is just a muscle. 
you know, it's a very complicated muscle. It's got lots of attachments and it's a, it does a very big job all day. It's sort of like our breathing muscles and, you know, they don't really turn off and they're always there, but it is a muscle that itself can fatigue. It's a muscle that also can be strong in lots of ways. So when we, when we often talk to people about muscle strength, it can be elements of endurance. It can be elements of power. So do I need my pelvic floor to hold all day or is it I actually am about to jump up and I want my pelvic floor to support me? That's a really important thing. But I suppose to also sort of encapsulate that getting sort of further around the pelvis is your pelvic floor in itself is not in isolation. So we've got a whole pelvis that your pelvic floor is attached to. And my favorite thing to sort of explain to people that it is the floor of your pelvis. And sometimes I think people think, I always equate it to a can of beans, that you've got your diaphragm at the top, <laughs> you've got your pelvic floor at the bottom, and you've got your muscle systems in your abs, especially right around through the middle. And it is that whole, I suppose, very dynamic cylinder working together. So it might not be that your pelvic floor is just weak, because I think sometimes that that is a really just easy assumption for people to make. It could could be it's not great when it's under really big force really suddenly. That can be a way that pelvic floor is not as strong. Or is it actually the whole cylinder can be better optimised? What's funny is I've never had great pelvic floor even before children. Mm-hmm. I definitely noticed the difference between having a vaginal delivery and a cesarean. I've had one of each. And after the cesarean, I was like, oh, wow, everything's intact. This is actually really <laughs> nice. Um, except your stomach muscles. Except your stomach muscles. Mm. But it's a different sensation. Yes. And so I've spoken to lots of people about pelvic floor strength in particular. Never felt that it was great. I got an exercise bike during COVID. I did cycle classes just online. And it's for the one time in my life I noticed, oh, my pelvic floor is so much better. This is really strange. It's the first time ever that I've noticed because of obviously the up and down on the bike, it got better. But I have tried and tried and tried to improve my pelvic floor forever. And I think actually now... I might be wrong, but I think it was bad all the time before, whereas now I'm noticing at certain times it's it's worse. But right. then there's certain times it's better because it's a bit stronger, I think. I also think that you've got to find surely not everything works for everybody and that sometimes some of the exercises you might have thought were strengthening your pelvic floor can actually make it worse. Definitely. And I... Go to say this sort of quickly is I'm not I'm not a women's health physio myself, but what you know, working with a lot of women's health physios, what I think people sometimes go straight to weak. Mm. You know, things can actually be really I'm going to say not functioning well because they're actually really tight. Mm. And so one of the things we get, you know, again, it's one of those little nervy things that I, you know, you hear a gym instructor being like, "Lift it up, ladies," you know, up nice and tight, (laughs) and you're sort of a bit like, "Oh, that might be what half of them need, but half of them don't actually." But I think one of the things to, again, sort of what we sort of talked about before, finding the clinician that works with you, but also it shouldn't only be looking at your pelvic floor. If they're only looking at your pelvic floor, I think they're missing elements. So what's your breath control? What are you actually trying to ask your pelvic floor to do? And do you have the skill for that? And then elements that go to that is how strong is your actual abdominal wall? How strong are your legs? Are we, you know, shock absorbing through your legs really, really well? Because, you know, running such an interesting thing for pelvic floor, it's obviously trying to deal with the bounce factor. But if your legs aren't hitting the ground and absorbing the ground, our, you know, to bore you completely for a second, you cut your deep calf muscle, your soleus, is trying to cope with six times your body weight going through it when you're bouncing along. Your glutes, your quads, these are all working really, really hard. Wow. So I sometimes feel like, it takes a, and I feel
feel like this is that cliche of it needs to be a top down and bottom up approach to looking at it and looking at are your goals working to what you actually need to do? Because doing a long pelvic floor hold, it can be really effective for some people. But if you want to bounce up onto aerobic step, you actually need that sudden power. So to, you need to train to what you need. And this is something we talk about a lot with any clients about sort of any muscle tissue injury is that you've got to earn what you need and that might be building a foundation and then building into specific power movements and a lot more fast movements or coordinating breath and pelvic floor and a crazy arm in an aerobics class type situation. That's all got to work together. And again, I think the clinician's got to ask those questions to know exactly what you need. And I think as as a patient walking into the room, I, I recommend you walk in and say, I genuinely think I need this, this and this, and this is what I've noticed. That problem solving nature works as a team. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard though, isn't it? When you took me lockdown, a spin bike and <laughs> all of my life yeah. <laughs> to actually get to a point where I fully can say it's so much better than what it ever has been. So it's good to work but it you, out. We're always learning. Mm. And I, I think just on the pelvic floor nature for one second is that unfortunately the statistics around it is two and three women who've carried a baby, which is a really careful diagnosis to say whether it's Caesar, natural, um, you know, vaginal birth, you know, the most best way to word it all is that something heavy in your abdomen for that amount of time, two and three women end up with some dysfunction. And what I we talk about a lot in sort of musculoskeletal circles as well as sports circles because pelvic floor tonicity and incontinence due to tight pelvic floor is also an issue in sport world that's not talked about. No. Is, it is seriously about asking those questions. And these women who, you know, often women are see a women's health physio for um, it is women more than men in this space is that it's not waiting till it gets awful and that you've got to the gym and you've wet yourself and you've had to drop a drink bottle on you and pretend you dropped a drink bottle. We've heard all mm. sorts of awful stories. One of the you know greatest statistics that I can share with you on that is that conservative management of pelvic floor, so we're not talking surgeries or anything crazy, is helping up to 60 to 70% of women manage their symptoms better but you've got to reach out to ask the question to get the care to do that. And I think one of the statistics worries us about that is I just don't think women are coming forward. But it's about what you think it's normal. I think that's the problem. You think, oh, well, that's just what happens. I've seen the ads for 10 lady pads. So, you know, I guess it's just one of those things that I'm just going to have to deal with incontinence at some point in my life. But no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And I think it's also about if you want to jump and move and do all those things more, seek care, seek help. Those Mm. options are there. It's trying to break that colloquialism about, oh, she'll be right, mate, you know, about it. You know, there's lots of um, advocacy going on about it should be mandated that every woman gets a chance to see a women's health physio at her six-week checkup through, you know, the public system, the private system. Anyone who has carried a baby really should be looking to have a check, sort of like the men's health check and our breast check and our pap smear. You know, it it should be sort of normalised that you you reach out and you seek care for that. It really should. I think Mm. anybody that's been pregnant should see a physio afterwards because (laughs) pregnancy just does the meanest things to your body. And as someone who has has, uh, a lot of flexibility, I did not enjoy it at all. Just before we let you go, how important is it to have a strong body, to be strong? Strong bodies allow us to do cool stuff. 
you know, in, in a really <laughs> simple way, I think. We do have, there's lots of evidence and about lots of different parts of our body. The stronger we are, the more our tissues tolerate. The more we tolerate, the less injured we get. So, you know, ultimately we're just hoping that people feel good in their bodies and it does what they want to do. I talk about the word optimal a lot because optimal to me means whatever that person needs to get to. So the tissue tolerance that you need to do your life is what you should succeed and, and aim for. It's just understanding how you get your strength in the safest way for you. And that's where individualization, I, you know, I know that's the cliche of it. It has to fit you and what you want. Mm. And it's finding that team to help you with that more than just do more bicep curls. Like it's really trying yeah. to be fit, be strong. And, you know, one of the things I talk about with strong as well is that you need to be strong for mobility. You need to be strong for power, strong for endurance, but strong also feels good. And, you you know, ideally we want you to move because it feels good, not because you just have to and someone told you to, yeah. but it's about finding the way that you enjoy being strong and fit is sort of ideally what our, what health professionals can help you with. And mm. also for longevity, I think that's the other thing that we kind of live in the Good now. For your bones. Bones, muscles, hormones, everything long term. I think that is very important. So I'm glad that you. And I don't want to be in that statistic that you gave at the beginning about the amount of old people in chronic pain. Yeah, no. It's so Aww, important that we look after ourselves. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Where can people, people, all of the people, where can people find out more about you and your work? So um, I um, run and own a clinic in the suburbs of Melbourne and Eltham called the Optimal Health Lab. Please reach out to us there. I run a fantastic team of allied health professionals. So I believe that team healthcare is the way that medicine's going. So we're physiotherapists, podiatrists, myotherapists and dietitians and an exercise space that I call our strength lab. So I think it's a really important thing for people to find their people, but we can also, our team might be the people for you, but also we can help point you in the right places for really pain literate. If it's pain care, you need or just someone that's a good unit who's there to take care of you because that's what good health professionals do. Amazing. Yay. Awesome. Cecilia, we are just sitting patiently waiting for some new reviews. Oh, we haven't had any of those again. Like oh, we haven't, but that's all right. I'm sure after this one, people are going to be going, I didn't know I could have a pelvic floor that was too tight. Here there I am thinking that it was all about my floppy pelvic floor <laughs> and it's not that at all. <laughs> so you know what to do. Oh, go absolutely. on to uh, Apple Podcasts, leave us a message or go on to our Instagram, which is The Wellness Collective Podcast and um, send us a little message that way. Mm-hmm. Take a photo mm-hmm. of where you are. Maybe you're on the treadmill. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Or you're... just sitting in the car, just doing your own <laughs> pelvic floor exercise. I don't know. Apparently, you, you can't do. tell, but I reckon you can see it on someone's ah! face. <laughs> ah, that's pretty funny. Lauren, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and uh, Natalie, until next yes. time, we hope this episode has left you feeling happier, healthier, and better. Listener.